0: a very good evening to everybody, at least it is evening as I make this particular recording. I hope that after having read the first set of slides you have at least begun to get into the life and the culture and the background of the man we know as the Apostle Paul. What I'd like to do is to remind you that we are at this point on a set of PowerPoint slides that is entitled The Historical Background to the life of Paul and what we will be looking is at the Jewish background and the Greek background and the Roman background in which the Apostle Paul lived. It will help us to understand his life and his achievements and the difficulties that he faced and the influences that were on him because the day of the Apostle Paul was very different from the lifestyles and the uh, influences that we have in our day and age. What we had done last time is that we had started on the second of the PowerPoint slides, this one entitled The Historical Background, and we'd begun with the specific uh, uh, mention of his Jewish background. Now, as I'm uh, bringing us to the point where we were before, we'd spoken about four institutions that were very influential in Jewish religion and Jewish worship, and we'd come to Jewish sects that is number four on that particular list. Josephus called the sects of philosophy in Judaism. I suspect that he was trying to present Jewish thought and Jewish practice in an acceptable way to Greeks, who certainly did think in terms of philosophies. We had spoken about two particular groups in the Jewish um, uh, uh, sects, their, their thinking, the way that they had seen their religion. The one would be the Pharisaical one, and the other would be the Sadducees. We'd started to talk about the Pharisees. They were the most accurate interpreters of the Old Testament law. They were the ones who were restorationists in a sense because they went back to the Old Testament in the same way that we might go back to the Bible and they searched minutely for all of the commands and the warnings that the Old Testament gave and then they tried very seriously to live out those commands and warnings. That's uh, All of those were good things. I suppose, I suspect, that you remember that the... Lord Jesus gave them a hard time, referred to them as hypocrites in many instances. Okay, class, one of those things that sometimes happens, the phone went off in the middle of my presentation. We were talking about the Pharisees, and I was suggesting that although they had been very good at carrying out the minute details of the law of Moses and the Old Testament law, that they had forgotten to look at the big pictures, such things as uh, commitment to God and love for each other and genuineness in their worship and that kind of thing. And that's what Jesus gave them a hard time about the pharisees believed in angels and the resurrection from the, from the dead uh, they numbered about 6000 according to josephus who was a jewish uh, historian of the day there are two distinct schools in pharisaism the one was the school of shammai which was more conservative the more conservative of the two and the other was the school of hillel these to be the more lenient or more liberal uh, some might suggest perhaps the uh, uh, more uh, humanly Sympathetic of the two particular groups. Now, the Sadducees were the other great uh, political group, uh, philosophical group in Judaism of the day, and it's interesting that the Apostle Paul was aware of this difference, and Luke even records it. Uh, If you have a Bible, would you please look at Acts 23 beginning with verse 6. Here is an incident where Paul says something very interesting about his own life and convictions, and then he also uh, recognizes a, dis- a distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Acts 23, beginning with verse 6. Luke says, Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. I'll read verse 8 in just a moment. Notice what Paul had said. He says, I'm a Pharisee. He used the present tense. He suggests he still is a Pharisee. Now, we may say to ourselves that in Acts 23, he has been a Christian for a long time by now. In what sense was he a Pharisee? Well, he explains himself. He says, it's because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, if I may explain... Paul always believed in the resurrection of the dead. Paul always believed that that's what God would do to those who had died. As a Pharisee, that was his uh, conviction, but he did not believe specifically in the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead until he met him on that Damascus road, and that was the distinction. So in one sense, Paul was always a Pharisee. Prior to becoming a Christian and since becoming a Christian, he was he was consistent to the degree that he always believed in the resurrection now he makes this call in the middle of this crowd of jewish people in jerusalem and then luke explains for us in verse 8 it says for the he say that there is no resurrection nor angel nor spirit But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Notice that Luke gives the distinction between the two. The Sadducees would have been perhaps a lot like uh, liberal theologians in our day and age, Uh, I should explain. Liberal theologians who study the Bible will frequently uh, study it minutely and in great detail, but they may not necessarily believe in the account of miracles in the Gospels or the opening of the Red Sea or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead or even the inspiration of the Scriptures. And so, what they do is that they, they they believe in various aspects of Christianity, like love and um, holiness and righteousness and that kind of thing, so they say, but they don 't believe in any of the miracles. The Sadducees were a lot like that; they did not see much of a life outside of the the physical bodies and people and interactions that you could see around you. But Sadducees Pharisees believed in all of those things. In angels. In life after death. And so that was the distinction in that sense then the Apostle Paul still considered himself a Pharisee. If you would like to remember what we just suggested for the sake of a test you might say something like this. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and in angels and the Sadducees did not and that's sad you see. Now, I know that's corny, but I suppose you could say to yourself, corny or not, I got myself one point in a test that might be coming up. I'd like to spend a little bit of time thinking about the kind of education that a young Jewish boy might receive in the first century. It's clear that the Apostle Paul was a well-educated man. He was a deep-thinking man. He was an individual uh, for whom uh, the the thinking of the Jewish people and the Torah and the Mishnah and the Old Testament was something that was part of his life. It oozed out of his pores, so so, uh, an understanding of his background would be a help to understanding Paul. A Jewish young man by the age of five would be reading the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the Apostle Paul would likely have been in a synagogue in the city of Tarsus, and he would have been learning from a rabbi in that local town from the Torah. By the age of 10, he would have also known the Mishnah which would be a collection of oral law, the tradition of the elders, in fact you might recall that several times Jesus even refers to the tradition of the elders. You may recall that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, he gives the Jewish leaders a hard time because they had placed a greater emphasis on the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders than they had in the actual biblical commands. So the oral law and the tradition of the eldest would be something Paul would have learned by the age of 10. By the age of 13, he would have begun to practice the commandments in the um, Old Testament. He would become a, a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments. He would be a young man now who had made his commitment to serve God. I would like to make an observation that uh, even in Christianity sometimes we make a reference to the term, the age of accountability, and usually that seems to work out, at least in our society, to about age 12, 13, 14, something like that. And this uh, bar mitzvah, the son of the uh, commandments, would be quite similar to that. By age 15, he would have read and studied the Talmud, uh, which was another commentary on the Old Testament. Many people wonder whether Paul was married or not. You might be surprised that someone even asks a question like that. But the thing that raises that question is a statement that is made in Acts 26 and verse 10. Please look at that passage with me. Acts 26 and verse 10. Paul is saying this, and I did so in Jerusalem, referring to persecuting the Jews. I not only locked up many of the saints, in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Please note his statement that he cast his vote against them. It could be that he's making a reference to his position in the Sanhedrin. He would have had to have been married, most people think, to in order to have been in the Sanhedrin at that point. And so they're wondering if perhaps at that point he was married and then he cast his vote in the uh, Sanhedrin, it would have been very unusual for someone of Paul's young age or relative young age to be in the uh, Sanhedrin, married or not. Uh, The Sanhedrin was comprised of elders in the community, men who had lived uh, a long time and distinguished themselves in the community as spiritual individuals, not just political individuals. So there is a lot of question as to whether he was married or not. We don't know for sure. Some have suggested he was widowed, and by the time he became a Christian that he was not married. Certainly during the years of his Christianity he was not. We know this from various comments that he himself made. Note if you would 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. Here Paul is talking about the various rights that he and Barnabas might have taken but they had not. He says, "We do not have the right to take along a believing uh, I beg your pardon, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas?" Paul is asking, don't Barnabas and I have the right to have a wife, Uh, just like other individuals, apostles, leaders in the early church do, clearly implying that he does not at this point have a wife. Uh, Notice also 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7 in this regard. Here Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of, of another. In an extended conversation about marriage and various relationships in marriage, Paul suggests that he wishes that more people would be unmarried, just as he is. He feels like there are some advantages to ministry, uh, his ability to focus on ministry and missions as a single man. Now, my uh, point at this, suge- at this juncture is to suggest that the Apostle Paul, we know, was unmarried during his years as a Christian. Likely he was never married, but we don't know that for sure. Now, uh, I would like to say something along that line. I'm not suggesting that anybody who is listening to me right now uh, should say to himself that, well, Brother Mitchell is saying that I shouldn't get married, but I am doing this. Ask yourself, is there not the possibility that I could spend some time of my early life, perhaps a season in my life when I'm not married and perhaps could be more committed to uh, pure mission work or pure ministry uh, in an inner city or at a foreign field or or wherever I happen to live, that that might not be a God-given time when I can serve him completely. And there may be a later age in my life, a later season in my life when as a married person my service to God would be perhaps just as committed but in a different way because in that instance then people could uh, come into my home and I could be more hospitable with a wife and a family and perhaps even be influential more so with married people and families. That is at least the thought. We don't know for sure but we suspect that Paul was a rabbi just like Gamaliel, who was his mentor. He would, if he was a rabbi, have worn the telephim, which would be the word for phylacteries. These would be uh, pieces of the Torah uh, or the law placed inside the hem of his garments, perhaps at the sleeve or perhaps down by his ankles where his garment reached the floor or perhaps even in his collar. Uh, this, well, he would have also carried a prayer shawl. Uh, S-H-A-W-L where he would have been able to stop at any moment uh, during a trip or uh, during any point of his day and be able to pray to place uh, this shawl over his head. It would be like a handkerchief or a scarf or something like that and in that that way be respectful to the Lord as he prayed. Now if you're following along in the uh, PowerPoints, you will see that I've given an example of a Talmud. Uh, it's the slide that has a picture of Hebrew writing on it. Uh, of course, you can see the aging on the sides of the pages because it is very old. But here's an example, at least, of something that the Apostle Paul would have studied as a young man, um, as most Jewish young men would have studied in that day. The Jews in the early Roman Empire, Strabo, who was a historian, uh, said this, It is not easy to find a place in the inhabited world which this tribe has not penetrated. Uh, I suppose that is a tongue-in-cheek or left-handed compliment to the way the Jews had penetrated every city and every village of the Roman Empire of that day. There were large concentrations of Jews outside of Palestine. Uh, Many were in Babylon and in Phoenicia and in Cyrene and in Greece and in Rome and even in Alexandria in Egypt. Some people estimate that uh, there were about three to eight million uh, 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 Jews in the Roman Empire and they made up about 7% of the population of the Roman Empire, so in fact they were a fairly significant ethnic group if you recall, of course, that the Roman Empire had covered all of southern Europe and northern Africa, extending all the way from uh, what we would now know as Iraq uh, in the east, all the way across to Britain in the west, so there are a lot of ethnic groups in that great empire and 7% of them were Jews. Most cultivated Greeks and Romans had a negative view of Jews. I suppose we could say that anti-Semitism is not a new thing. Uh, Anti-Semitism, of course, is the term we use today to refer to people who are prejudiced against Jewish people. But even in the first century, there was resentment towards these individuals. There are three reasons uh, that are given here. Number one, they were prejudiced against Easterners. Uh, Jews, Greeks and Romans, I beg your pardon, Greeks and Romans, not Jews, Greeks and Romans had a negative view of people who lived on the eastern part of the Mediterranean. This would include Egyptians and Syrians and Arabs and and, and people living in the areas around Babylon, Persia, and the like, and of course also Jews. Number two, Jews' religion and custom were strange to them. It was so different uh, not to worship idols and so different to live this um, high moral excellence and standards. Uh, Most of the pagan religions, in fact, encouraged immorality and excesses and the like. So they felt like the Jewish religions and customs were strange. And thirdly, they resented the Jews for the privileges that Jews had. We will talk in a few moments about the very privileges that they had in the Roman Empire When Pompey came into Palestine and when he began, he he had taken over most of Asia Minor. He had taken over what we now think of as uh, uh, Iraq and Iran. And he moved south into the land of Palestine. And the Jewish people uh, were not actually defeated in a a battle or a war at that time against the Romans. What they did was they negotiated their own uh, uh, terms as they came into the Roman Empire. And so at that particular point, about 60 years before Christ, they had several advantages that many defeated uh, nations did not have. Judaism enjoyed a privileged position uh, for various historical reasons in the Roman Empire, and I've given a list of it. You can see those in, uh, in that PowerPoint slide. Number one, they had free expression of their religion. Uh, Jewish religion was considered to be a legal religion in the empire. Uh, It does in fact have an impact on Christianity because in the early years of Christianity, it was not clear to the Roman authorities that Christianity was a religion separate and apart from Judaism. It seemed like just a branch of Judaism. Uh, Perhaps a Roman would have said, well, there are Pharisees and there are scribes and there are Sadducees and there are Christians. But as the century continued, it became more and more apparent that Christianity was a religion all by itself. It was a a religion separate and apart from Judaism, so the early years of Christianity, when it wasn't clear that it was separate from Judaism, it received some protections from the Romans because they classed Christians as part of the Jewish religion. However, as the uh, century continued and it became clear that this was not so, then of course Jews continued to have the privilege of their own religion and Christianity became considered more and more an outlaw religion. The second uh, advantage enjoyed by the Jews in the Roman Empire was that they were exempted from worshipping pagan deities, they did not have to Uh, they had negotiated this um, privilege, this right and of course it fit in with the Jewish belief that there was only one God anyway, number three they could regulate their life by their own law. Uh, the Jews had their own ways of doing things, uh, circumcision and the various uh, uh, dietary uh, challenges that the, ro- that, that the Jews had and the clothing that they might wear and, and the like, and so they could go ahead and live culturally as Jewish people, keeping to uh, their own feasts and their own practices. Number four, they were exempt from military service. The Jews did not have to fight in the Roman army Number five, the Sabbath was protected. The Jews did not have to work on the Sabbath. Uh, Of course, you know that in the Law of Moses they were told uh, not to work on the Sabbath, but it was also okayed by the Roman Empire. And so, when the Jews uh, uh, came to six o'clock on what we would think of as Friday evening, uh, they would cease work, they would cease their businesses, they would cease working for employers who might not be Jewish. And then, at six o'clock on what we think of as Saturday, their Sabbath would end, and then they would go back and do their business or go. back to their work so the sabbath was protected and 5 uh, i'm sorry and number 6 there is a the protection of messengers with the temple tax All over the Roman Empire, all over the Diaspora, Jewish people would send money for the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Messengers, Jewish messengers would take this from all of the far reaches of the empire all the way across to Jerusalem on an annual basis. Romans did not stop these messengers. They did not tax them. They did not take the money from them. This was considered a Jewish matter and so these messengers could go without any hindrance. Now, what kind of person was paul himself? What kind of Jewish person was he himself? Now Paul will say uh, on several occasions that he was deeply and thoroughly a Jewish man, by religion, my conviction and by culture. Uh, notice these two statements particularly by the apostle in second Corinthians chapter eleven and verse twenty two he says this second corinthians eleven verse twenty two Here he is speaking about his credentials uh, as an apostle. He says, are they Hebrews? Uh, That is his detractors. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Now, he's referring to the fact that he is thoroughly and completely a Jew. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says something very similar. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, he says of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, once again, we're suggesting that not only was Paul then a a Jewish person uh, by, by race, by birth, by accident of who he was born what family he was born into but he was also Jewish uh, from deep within his heart. Uh, this is who he was. Uh, even today there are distinctions made in Jewish communities. People will talk in terms of uh, people who are secular Jews. Uh, they may be Jewish ethnically. Their DNA is Jewish uh, but they don't live a particularly Jewish lifestyle but there are also orthodox Jews and you can tell by the way that they dress and by the way that they be and by their regular attendance in uh, a Sabbath worship, perhaps, that they are Jews not only by accident of birth but by also the way they worship and behave. Paul would have been an Orthodox Jew had he lived in the year 2011, and that's what his suggestion is here. In fact, as we read through these particular passages, we learn several things about him. He was circumcised on the eighth day, all Jewish men were circumcised as babies. Number two. He was of the people of Israel, he says. And number three, specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this is interesting because you might recall that the southern kingdom of Israel was referred to as Judah. The northern kingdom, of course, would have the other ten tribes. There were actually two tribes in the south, uh, 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 circled around the city of Jerusalem. There would be Judah itself and Benjamin. That would be the second. And so he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He adds a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's trying to suggest is that he was deeply and completely and thoroughly to the pores, a Jewish person. Number five, he says he was a Pharisee. We've already suggested that earlier on that his belief in the resurrection of the dead and angels and spirits uh, was what made him a Pharisee. And then number six, he was zealous. Now we're speaking, of course, of the character of the man Paul. Here is his personality. Here is an individual who, when he believed something was true, believed it from the bottom of his heart and acted out that belief. He was a zealous man. As a persecutor of the church and, of course, later on as a Christian, he would have been the foremost actor in Christianity in his day. Now we switch for just a few moments from Paul's Jewish background to his Greek background background. Now the first century Mediterranean area was ironically and perhaps surprisingly to some a Greek culture. Now we uh, are aware, no doubt, that the Romans ruled the Mediterranean in that day, but it was the Greeks who made them a culture. The Greeks preceded the Romans as a world power. Uh, You might recall that Alexander the Great was an individual, a military genius who captured most of the eastern Mediterranean and even extended his empire as far as the Indus River at the boundary of the nation of India. And what I'm suggesting when I say this is that, that for those years then, the Mediterranean became Greek. Now, the Romans later on defeated the Greeks militarily, but the Romans did not take hold as Latin people for another several centuries. Maybe we should begin with some of these things. There there was an antagonism uh, between uh, uh, the Greeks and the Persians to begin with. This would be in the era between the Testaments. The Medes and Persians had ruled the world as an empire themselves. Cyrus the Great and people like that. But then as time went on, the Greeks began to revolt against Persian rule. Cyrus the Great had conquered Ionia, uh, which is Eastern Greece in the 6th century before Christ. Still Persia was never able really to conquer the Greek mainland. Uh, they they tried several incursions. Uh, there was Darius's force. that was defeated at Marathon in 490 BC by a coalition of Greek cities. And then in 480 BC, the Persians held off the uh, the Persians were held off by the Greeks at Thermopylae. Now you may recall that there was in fact a a movie that came out recently. And I'd like to make the observation that although the Greeks were not super. Hu- and although they couldn't do some of the uh, pyrotechnics that were depicted in that very imaginative movie, that, that the actual battle was realistic in the sense that there were only two, 200 individuals there and they held off the entire Persian army that day. There were geographical factors that influenced the growth of city states in Greece originally the, the nation of Greece was not so much a united nation as it was a, a grouping of city states one of them would be the fact that Greece is a very mountainous country, there are lots of mountains and valleys and so uh, um, it had a long coastline and so one of the things is that, that cities tended to be isolated from each other, uh, there was a lot of maritime trade, they would send ships uh, along the coast from city to city and begin their trade that way, now I have in the uh, PowerPoint handout an image of Thermopylae. If you gaze at that picture for just a moment you can see the mountains on the left side, rugged and very steep, rising very quickly from uh, very small beach area and then on the right of course on the picture you'd see the ocean and that's one of the reasons why such a small Greek force could hold off the might of the Persians is because there was a narrow neck of land and it would have been difficult for the Persians to either wade waist deep or chest deep in the ocean to try and flank the Greek armies or to climb up those mountains with those steep slopes. They were forced to narrow themselves down to just a few men to go through this narrow stretch. You're probably aware that the Greek, ancient Greek culture was a very rich one. There are a lot of things that still influence our society even today. In many senses, we are Greek in the way that we think, in the way that we behave, in the way even that we do our architecture. When you think about Greek Greek, thinkers. Uh, you think about Pythagoras who was a great mathematician as some of you may know and Socrates Plato and Aristotle uh, great philosophers, deep thinkers individuals that not only influenced the, the first century uh, of which Paul uh, was a part but also even later on during the Renaissance when uh, the, the Renaissance people began to go uh, back all the way through to the original documents, uh, the writings of people like, like Socrates and Aristotle, and so on, and you remember, of course that in the Renaissance that, that this was a, a reawakening of Europe, uh, Italy and, and France and Germany and places like that reawakened when they went back to these original manuscripts and began to read them and translate them. There was a search all over Europe and all over Asia Minor and into Palestine and North Africa for every manuscript they could find uh, so that they could read these um, uh, ancient Greek writers. They benefited from it uh, when you think about the fact that even today in our democracy, in the United States of America, uh, democracy comes from a Greek man named Democritus who wrote about the fact that governments should be responsive and responsible to the people, not the other way around. Uh, in ancient times, of course, it was usual for the leader to say, I'm the leader, I'm the king, I'm the emperor, everybody do it my way. But in a democracy at uh, intervals, in America it's every four years, we vote for an individual to be president. We can even elect out a sitting president if we feel like he has not done the job. In fact, uh, this is a very Greek idea. Plato wrote a book called The Republic, and in it, as you might guess from that title, he speaks of the fact that that, that, uh, a government should be representative of the people. People elect individuals, they go into central government, they speak and they debate and they vote, and at regular intervals, every two or three years, the people then could either hire or fire them. And it seems to me that that is also something that we see in our day and age. Drama is something that comes from the Greeks. An amphitheater would be an outdoor structure where, it, where the people sit in a semicircular uh, a stadium where people sit in rising rows and where the actors down on the stage then could speak. They could speak in a normal voice and they could be heard all the way throughout the amphitheater because uh, of the acoustics of that particular structure. There are amphitheaters all over uh, Greek countries and that too has had an effect even in our lives today. Uh, so, uh, the Greeks were very, very influential. You may ask yourself the question, how is it that the Greeks were so influential? Uh, there were other cultures. Uh, you are aware that Babylon was once a world power. They were the ones who took the southern nation of Judah into captivity. Why were people in the first century then not Babylonian? What about the Medes and Persians? Of course, the Medes and Persians also had some influences on the world of the first century, but why was it that the Greek culture was so strong? And why was it that it was So uh, such a a great part even of a Roman Empire that had militarily taken over Greek um, power, Greek cities, but that the Greek culture took over Rome. In the 4th century BC, Philip II of Macedon united the Greek city-states. One of the things that he did was that he realized that until the Greek city-states Athens and Corinth and Thessalonica and so on, until they all united together they would not be able to throw the Persians completely out of Greek lands and so he convinced and cajoled and even threatened various cities and various leaders to join a sort of of Greek uh, league of cities where they could fight a united front against the Medes and Persians. Now Philip of Macedon died early. Uh, under mysterious circumstances some have even suggested that his son was the one who assassinated him but we don't know that that's just one theory Alexander his son we know him as Alexander the Great succeeded his father at the throne he took the united nation of Greece And took the armies of Greece, of the united nation of Greece, and then began to drive the Persians backwards out of Ionia, out of Asia Minor, um, out of Palestine, out of Egypt. And, And at the end of a long extended campaign, Alexander the Great was the dominant figure in the world, and the Greeks, or the Macedonian Empire, was the dominant nation in the world. He drove people down through Palestine and to Egypt. He took over Mesopotamia. Finally, he reached the Indus River in the far western part of of India. He uh, controlled a huge uh, geographic area. Now, when Alexander the Great finally died, his kingdom at his death in 323 BC was divided uh, amongst three generals. Now, uh, we'll do this briefly because it's not, ex- not really germane to our discussion, but, but the, the three generals and their descendants then for the next several hundred years were the dominant leaders. Now, the two that are important to our study would be the Seleucids, uh, who were in control of Syria, and the Ptolemies, who were in control of Egypt. Now, at one time and another in history, one or, or the other of these generals and their their uh, progeny would be in control of Palestine or Israel, where the Jewish people lived. You might see in the PowerPoint an image of Philip II of Macedon Um, uh, He uh, looks very dignified in that uh, uh, carving um, that we have of him, and then the next image is one of Alexander the Great, a sort of idealized image uh, the Greek body, but you can see in his face a young man, he died at age 30. And then if you drop your eyes down to the map, the Macedonian Empire. If you look at that map, you can see that the Greeks uh, controlled all of the lands from Greece itself, which would be in the western part of the Mediterranean, all the way across um, uh, uh, the lands that we would now know is Iraq and Iran, all the way through Afghanistan, all the way to the edge of India, and then you also notice that there was a neck of land extending south into Egypt. Uh, These were all the lands that Alexander the Great conquered. He was a military genius. He outfoxed all kinds of nations Uh, in his battles. uh, He died the most powerful man in the earth. Now, we go back to a question that I asked a few minutes ago. And that question was, how is it then that Greek culture was such a a dominating factor in the first century? And the answer is this. Uh, There is a term that they used in those days, Hellenization. Hellenization is a word that's used to describe the the way the Greek people made their conquered lands Greek. They had, they uh, 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 forced and encouraged people who were not Greek to adopt. Uh, Greek customs, the Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek literature, everything Greek. Now, this was something new. Uh, History does not suggest that, for instance, the Babylonians were particularly interested in making other people Babylonian. They were interested in capturing them and taking taxes from them, but not necessarily to make them Babylonian. Uh, Nor were the Medes and Persians terribly interested in making everybody in their their known world Medo-Persian. But the Greeks were. Uh, The Greeks had an attitude that is colonial, we might say, in our day and age. I suppose the closest analogy to the Greeks taking over the world and, and, and allowing the world to take on the blessings of Greek culture would be like the British. Now, some of you perhaps are too young to remember this. I'm old enough. When I was young, I lived in a country called Southern Rhodesia. It was part of what was referred to then as the British Empire. In my early days as a schoolboy, we would stand and sing a song called God Save Our Gracious Queen. There were images of Queen Elizabeth, at that time a very young woman, on uh, walls in schools and on post offices and other public buildings. Uh, Southern Rhodesia and South Africa and Northern Rhodesia and Canada and uh, uh, Pakistan and India and Australia and, and many other countries were part of this great empire. Here was this great Empire that was about to crumble. You are probably also aware of that because in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, various outposts of the British Empire became independent, uh, sometimes willingly and sometimes not so willingly. But my point is this, the British people felt as if, and I know this is paternalistic, and I know some people would not think this is right, but they felt as if uh, that they would benefit all these nationalities, all these tribes and peoples if they taught them English and taught them English ways, and taught them English literature, and taught them English politics, and so on. And so uh, you can tell all the way across the former British Empire that people do British things. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of meeting perhaps a black man from Jamaica, and you may have said to yourself, or perhaps Bermuda, and you may have said to yourself, hmm, that black man speaks like an Englishman, not like an American. And the reason would be that he grew up under a British colonial system. And uh, you would see them doing British things like playing soccer or playing rugby or playing cricket. Uh, It should be said that most of the colonials, Australians and West Indians and Pakistanis and Indians, beat England at almost all of these games. But they are English in the way that they think. Now, the Greeks were like that. As they conquered all these various nations, they gave them the benefit of Greek thinking in Greek literature and the Greek language. Now, uh, again, you might say to yourself, well, that's paternalistic, that's not right. But there was just enough truth to what they were doing, uh, to give it a little kick, to give it a little bite, because Greek culture was an advanced culture. Their literature was profound and deep. Uh, Their philosophers were indeed great philosophers. Their science and mathematicians were far ahead of anybody else in that day and age. And so when they bequeathed all of these blessings of Greek culture to the various nations that they had around them, they were in some senses actually benefiting them although perhaps many of these people resented that. So when you come to the first century, most people would speak their local vernacular, whether it was Egyptian or Syrian or Hebrew, and they would also speak Greek. So when it comes to the New Testament, for instance, the New Testament is no longer written in the Hebrew language, but it's written in Greek. Most of the writers of the New Testament are Hebrew. Uh, You might expect them to have written the New Testament documents in their Hebrew language, but they did not. They wrote them in Greek. And that's because everybody in the known world would speak Greek as the trade language. You may wonder to yourself, what is the trade language of our day and age in the uh, year 2011? And my answer to you is, well... We're speaking it and you're listening to someone speaking it. English is the language where uh, you go almost anywhere in the world and you find yourself in a market or a large crowd and you don't know what's happening and you need some information. You could probably cry out with a loud voice and say, does anybody speak English here? And likely more than a few people will come over and speak to you and ask, yes, can we help you? We're speaking that very language you see at this moment. So Hellenization was the process whereby the Greeks uh, took over all these nations, not only militarily, but also culturally. In fact, Greek culture was so profound and so deep that Jewish people, even before the first century, found that their young people were no longer speaking good Hebrew, but they were speaking Greek. That is why they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. We know this is the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint, you can see the S-E-P-T, Sept uh, 70, and, and you can also see that the uh, insignia for the Septuagint is L-X-X. Those would be Roman numerals, of course, for 70. And the reason that the Septuagint uh, is called that is because of the 70 scholars who translated it. There was a large community of Jews in Alexandria and Egypt. And they realized that that young Jews were no longer speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, They were speaking Greek. And that's why they rendered the Old Testament into the Greek language. The Septuagint was named because of those 70 scholars. In fact, there's a legend that the 70 scholars worked independently. And then when they got together at the end, they found that they had verbatim the same translation as each other. Now, that is only a legend, of course. But there were 70 scholars. The Septuagint became the Bible of the primitive church in the first century when Paul or Peter or one of the biblical writers quotes from the Old Testament it is not the Hebrew Bible that they quote but the Septuagint and so the Jewish the the early Christians apparently read through the Septuagint and then found or sought and found the various prophecies about Jesus the Messiah in the Septuagint. Now you may be thinking to yourself, "Okay, here are the Roman, here are the Greeks." I'm sorry, who have Hellenized all of the known world, making everybody Greek. How did that affect the Jewish people? Here were the Jewish people living in Palestine, living their distinctive lifestyle. And you, if you ask that question, you would be right. It did have a great effect. As the Greeks began to bear down on the various nations and tell them to live a good Greek life and to take on aspects of Greek literature and so on, there was a debate in Israel regarding how the uh, Jewish people should respond to this. There were two uh, theories. Uh, one side might have been the side that said, you know, uh, the Greeks are cool and they're advanced and they do some uh, amazing things and so we should become Greek in the way that we think and in what we read and the like. There was another school of thought, though, uh, where Jewish people said, no, to be Jewish is much more than just where we go to worship. To be Jewish is a lifestyle. To be Jewish is to live before God Almighty uh, all the days of our life, in our homes and in our travels and in our Work, to live as a Jewish person and so we cannot take on Greek uh, culture we are always going to be Jewish and so there was this discussion this debate amongst Jewish people now the years I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes are 166 to about 163 before Christ now, this is in the intertestamental period, uh, and this is now known as the Maccabean period. In the land of Palestine, uh, the Greeks had realized that most Jews were not going to become Greek voluntarily, and so they began to enforce Greek ways onto the Jewish community. In fact, in the on the altar of God in the temple in Jerusalem, they actually offered a pig to zeus the greek uh, father god on the altar of god in the temple there was a later incident at a little village named modin a village outside jerusalem about 10 miles north Uh, there were greek agents who came up to that particular town and came to the altar where uh, priests were uh, about to offer sacrifices to god the god of the old testament and they demanded that these um, priests instead offer a pig to Zeus there, the way they had done back in the city of Jerusalem. Well, there was an elderly elderly man named Mattathias, who was a priest, and he was so enraged by what was happening that he actually stormed forward, took this sacrificial knife that he had in his hand, and he killed the young priest who was going to comply with the Greek demand that they offer that pig to Zeus. Well, of course, when he killed that young man and when they killed the Greek representatives at that particular gathering, then, of course, Mattathias realized that he was an outlaw. He became a fugitive. What he did then was that he fled south, south past Jerusalem, south past Hebron, uh, and south into the Negev, the mountainous, rugged desert type country south of the land of Israel, where uh, many people in history, David, for instance, had fled. When David fled from Saul in the Old Testament, they fled here where there were caves and there were hiding places. And there they began to mount a guerrilla war against Greek uh, forces. Uh, In fact, uh, the son of Mattathias, a younger man named Judas Maccabeus, This is a word that means the hammer, and perhaps you can even guess what his personality was like with a nickname like that. He was a very forceful, powerful character, and Judas Maccabeus took over the movement, and he was a military genius in guerrilla warfare, fighting from uh, uh, surprise attacks and melting back into the bush, and that's what he did. Judas Maccabeus and his fighters, in fact, fought against Jerusalem, the uh, forces of the Greeks in Jerusalem, and took the city. They may have been as surprised as anybody that they had done that, but when they realized that they had done so, then they began to advance through Samaria and into Galilee. And before you knew it, The Maccabeans were in control of the land of Palestine. Thus began the Maccabean era, as historians call it. And this would be a period of another 100 or 120 or 30 years where the Jews were actually independent, where they ruled themselves. And it was the uh, the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of Mattathias who ruled. Now, I want you to note that Mattathias was a priest. You recall, perhaps, that the priests came from the Levitical tribe. Uh, you may also remember that the kings in israel came from the tribe of judah and so what you see here is a change in the way israel had always done things in ancient times you would have priests from one tribe and kings from another tribe and there was a sort of balance of power now when the maccabean rulers take over the priest and the king are embodied in one individual, and you see how that works out when we come to the New Testament, and you see Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests, who were from the tribe of Levi, and who should have been interested uh, mostly in religious practices and in the worship at the temple, but you see they also now have political power as well, and that would have never happened, of course, in the old days when David is ruling or Solomon or someone like that. I see that our time is almost out, so what I'm going to do is to pause, and, and we will continue in this particular uh, handout set uh, with the quote from 1 Maccabees chapter 4, verse 46. I appreciate you listening to me, and I'll sign off.